Welcome to the Thriving Farmer Podcast. I'm your host, Michael Kilpatrick. Our mission is to inspire, educate, and celebrate sustainable farming. We believe that you can build a profitable, sustainable farm that gives you true farm freedom. Join us as we talk to farmers, innovators, educators, and entrepreneurs to glean their top takeaways in business and life. This podcast is sponsored by Small Farm University, the go-to resource for gardeners, homesteaders, and farmers around the world. Small Farm University delivers classes online and on demand with training on how to grow crops and how to grow a profitable farm business that serves you, your family, and your community well. Delivered by real farmers with hands-on experience and expertise, it's unique in its approach, using the RIPED method for growing and building a farm or farm business. SFU membership includes access to a private Facebook group and monthly live Q&A sessions where you can get your questions answered and find the support you need. To learn more, visit growingfarmers.com today. Hey, Thriving Farmers, Michael Kilpatrick here with yet another episode of the Thriving Farmer podcast. And today my guest is Peter Hatch, who has served as a director of gardens and grounds at Thomas Jefferson's Monticello. During his 35 years there, he managed 2,500 acres and the restoration of Jefferson's Grove and Monticello's eight-acre fruit and vegetable garden. He also developed many educational programs on the practice of historic garden preservation and has written four books, including A Rich Spot of Earth, Thomas Jefferson's Revolutionary Garden at Monticello. Peter, welcome to the podcast. I'm happy to be here. Yeah, we're honored to have you. So give us a little bit of, you know, again, to serve as a position like this, what was your background before you started there? I was an English major in college at the University of North Carolina. And um, after failing to get a job as an English teacher and ice hockey coach, I grew up playing ice hockey. All right. Uh, I decided to uh, go back to North Carolina and start a garden. Okay. Totally serendipitous. And um, uh, I then went to a, a, a community college in, in uh, landscape gardening in Southern Pines, North Carolina. Learned the nuts and bolts of horticulture. Then I, uh, I got my first job as the horticulturist at Old Salem in Winston-Salem, North Carolina. Uh-huh. 18th century Moravian community at the time way out in the frontier. They're very Germanic, very uh, careful, kept excellent records and a lot of great, amazing gardening references. Mm. Plans for gardens, plant lists. They had three uh, absolutely fabulous botanists before the 1820s. And it was a groundbreaking program at Salem. They were kind of uh, broke new ground in terms of um, of leading the effort to restore the gardens accurately to the way they were in the 18th century. And I came in on the ground floor and was involved for four years in restoring these gardens and taking care of them and interpreting them. Mm. Then in 1977, I um, was recruited by Monticello to become their superintendent of grounds. And uh, I worked at Monticello as the director of gardens and grounds for 35 years and had a great uh, variety of responsibilities. And uh, uh, it was uh, really the major part of my career. Mm-hmm. Since, since 2012, I've uh, pretty much retired. I spent uh, many years uh, traveling around the country talking about my latest book, mm-hmm. uh, Rich Spot of Earth. Um, I live a purely physical life. I have three hard scrabble acres. Uh, um, up against the, the uh, Blue Ridge Mountains. I have a big garden. Um, I have three hard scrabble acres that uh, 
where I nurture my pet trees. All right. Take care of a trail in Shenandoah National Park and uh, go on long bike rides. And uh, my wood stove is a way of life. And uh, when I get up, my dog gets up. When I go outside, my dog Romeo goes outside with me. Uh-huh. My wife home from work. She asked me what's for dinner. So that's um, that's my life right now. Mm-hmm. So let's go back to um, you know Salem, um, and it sounds like it's because it's not it's one thing to grow the varieties they grew or as close as you can, but you mentioned interpreting a little bit. Uh, expand on that a little bit. Well, uh, you know, every garden has a story, and mm-hmm. um, um, I often argue that the uh, the landscape around a historic house tells us as much about the uh, character of the individuals who live there as the uh, furniture or the architecture of the building itself. So that was sort of the, uh, the philosophy behind our work at uh, our serious work really at Old Salem. Mm-hmm. And they left us, like I said, really precise garden plans that were really quite beautiful. One involved a series of garden squares and they all were uh, organized with uh, diagonal rows, which I've never seen before. Um, and the rows, the four, the four squares, as they were called, uh, each had diagonal rows that formed another diamond in the middle of this square. So they're really quite, quite curious and interesting and um, and fruitful. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, um, when you got to Monticello, what kind of was the condition of things when you got there? Well, uh, you know, frankly, you know, uh, uh, Old Salem was a really much more sophisticated professional place than Monticello when I arrived in 1977. Uh, Monticello seemed like sort of a mom and pop organization in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. Um, um, mom took the t- gave the tours and pop took the tickets. And it wasn't yeah. quite true. There were great scholars at Monticello. And um, um, I can't belittle the character of Monticello in 1977 because it was really a, still a strong institution. But compared to Salem, it was um, a little bit behind times. Mm, okay. And um, the garden, there was been no interest really in restoring Jefferson's uh, copious notes on what the gardens were like. And horticulture at, uh, at Monticello meant uh, the flower arrangement program, which was a big, big deal. Um, what was Jefferson's vegetable garden uh, it was turned into a cut flower garden for arrangements in the house. Uh-huh. And uh, uh, there was no real interest in, in, the, in the history of the landscape. And at that point, the board at Monticello was getting interested in, in trying, to, um, trying to develop a, initially a, an arboretum or a botanic garden, showing yeah. some of Jefferson's favorite plants. One of the board members had gone to England and seen the beautiful gardens there. So that inspired a project called The Grove, um, which was an eight-acre ornamental forest that Jefferson conceived of uh, beginning really in the 1770s. And um, it was a fascinating project. It was uh, oversawn by a, a, a Connecticut landscape architect named Rudy Favretti, mm-hmm. who was instrumental in bringing me to uh, Monticello, actually. And I was brought in to, um, to actually restore The Grove, this eight-acre ornamental forest, part of which was a was a forest, a woodland mm-hmm. that we cleared and thinned according to Jefferson's specifications. Uh, Jefferson wrote that in America we can make gardens without expense. We have only to cut out the superabundant plants. Uh-huh. And under the constant beaming and almost vertical sun of Virginia, shade is our Elysium. And mm-hmm. he envisioned a buck elk to be, as it were, monarch of the woods and leaving stumps where they might be picturesque. 
Mm-hmm. Jefferson was a great uh, lover of the landscape. Uh, he considered um, landscape architecture as one of the seven fine arts. Um, not horticulture, wrote Jefferson, but the art of embellishing grounds by fancy. Mm-hmm. When Jefferson was serving as minister of France in the 1780s, um, he uh, went to England and visited 22 English landscape gardens. And at the time in England, uh, um, the idea for a garden was to uh, replicate nature as carefully as possible. And gardeners were told to plant as you would paint. And um, the gardens were an effort to replicate these uh, picturesque landscape paintings really of the 17th and 18th century. So these were very romantic uh, English landscape informal gardens that Jefferson was very much impressed by. And he hoped to translate them to uh, the conditions at Monticello, but he realized that the climate in Virginia was uh, inhospitable Mm. uh, to the the rolling verdant English countryside. So he thought the equivalent would be the American forest. Uh Where in England, you have this rolling verdant uh, landscape uh, speckled with ponds here and clumps of trees over here. In America, the equivalent was the uh, deciduous forests. And the way you treat that forest is by clearing the trees, pruning the trees very, trees very high, and as he said, procuring a buck elk to be, as it were, monarch of the woods. Uh-huh. So this 18-acre area was, um, was my responsibility under the direction of Mr. Favretti to, uh, to recreate and restore, and that was my first, um, my first big assignment at Monticello, and um, I came, however, under the uh, premise that uh, I would also be working in restoring Jefferson's fruit and vegetable garden. Uh, the restored flower garden has been put back by the Garden Club of Virginia in the 1940s, so they were already there. But these other projects uh, over my 35 years were exciting them, uh, exciting goals to achieve. Mm-hmm. Now, when Jefferson uh, bought the property, I forget uh, actually the history of that property and how he acquired he inherited, it. He inherited it. From he inherited it. Okay. Um, he knew that he was getting himself into something because literally it's the top of a mountain. Right, right. And I, I think if I remember correctly, they had to haul the water basically up the mountain. That's right. Water was always a big issue uh, for Jefferson in terms of horticulture and agriculture and uh, all the uh, daily requirements of everyday life. Um, yeah. But I'm not sure water was used in the same sort of um, way that we uh, use it today. I think it was um, it, 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 water was carried up uh, from the side of the mountain. There was a well at the top of Monticello Mountain, but it's uh, periodically went dry. There were springs that were 100, 200 yards down the mountain that provided water as long as um, there was adequate rainfall during the summertime. Uh, Jefferson captured water with cisterns, which were at the four corners of the house. They mm-hmm. captured rainwater from the roofs and the terraces, um, but which never really properly worked. Um, so water was a, a fundamental issue involved with living on top of a mountain, but um, Jefferson um, uh, was a romantic in some ways. He said, uh, how sublime uh, to look down upon the workhouse of nature, clouds mm. under lightning all fabricated at our feet. And um, uh, so the landscape for Jefferson was a workhouse and um, um, the gardens of Monticello became the sort of experimental laboratory for him. Practical mm. or not, uh, his place was on a mountain and it had its own pluses and minuses. 
Yeah, absolutely. Now with this eight acre kind of forest that you worked on, is that directly below the gardens on the side there? It's actually on the other side of the mountain from the vegetable gardens on the northwest side of the mountain. Okay. The northwest side. And it's a, it's a, you know, it was, a, it was, a, it, it was a, really were two ingredients to the grove. One was a, a forest that had survived from mostly from Jefferson's day. It was a pretty old growth forest, but, mm -hmm. um, and we cleared and thinned that according to Jefferson's specifications. And then there was an open area of about, um, of about three acres where we planted, uh, trees according to Jefferson's specifications. So that mm -hmm. was part of the botanic garden, so to speak. Gotcha. And then with, I'm assuming there were very specific varieties of trees that he, he wanted. Yeah, a really unusual planting plan at the edge of Jefferson's West Lawn. He said along the edge of the, uh, of the walkway plant seven wild crab apples, 25 feet apart. Hmm. And he said beyond them plant china berry trees. Um, uh, breaking the rows of the crab apples, two rows of these um, of these china berry trees. He said beyond them plant umbrella magnolias, a native magnolia, uh, catalpa trees, which most mm -hmm. Americans know, uh, aspens, which are native further north and out west, but can barely survive here. And then walnuts, elms, and uh, other ver and, um, and other various um, native species of trees. It was a it's a fascinating plan. Um, a lot of trees that don't grow very well in our part of the world, uh, like the china berry is, ba is, is barely hardy in Charlottesville. Mm -hmm. uh, the aspen grows best perhaps further west or further north. Uh, the umbrella magnolia grows along uh, wetlands and uh, along rivers in central Virginia. So uh, it was an interesting and curious plan, but I think a real um, uh, direct look into the uh, imaginative landscape mm -hmm. vision of Thomas Jefferson. Absolutely. Yeah. So when you got there and started restoring the gardens, there's a picture in your book of literally redoing the, the rock walls. Is that what, what you guys had to do across the entire thing? Was there anything left when you got there? Or? Yeah, when Jefferson used the word garden, uh, he was really reserving the town exclusively for his vegetable garden. And um, um, it was uh, restored beginning right really soon after I got there based on Jefferson's extensive notes and also years of landscape archaeology. Mm -hmm. Jefferson's notes, uh, he, he wrote, uh, there's a volume of Jefferson's letters about gardening and also his garden book that's 700 pages long. Oh my gosh. Jefferson kept a diary called the garden book. It's 59 pages long and it's bound in leather and today resides in the, um, at the Massachusetts uh, Historical Society in Boston. And uh, the garden book is a remarkable document showing one man's uh, dance with the elements, one man's adventures with gardening. It's a reflection of Jefferson as a, uh, as a scientist. Um, mm -hmm. um, but you see really into the, uh, the mind and body of Thomas Jefferson when you read his garden book. So we know a lot about um, the, the documentary evidence about this garden was unequal. In addition, um, Monticello uh, contrasted with uh, archaeologists and over a period of three years, they uh, tried to confirm a lot of this written documentation and also to enable the uh, restoration of this area to begin. And um, for example, like you mentioned, the rock wall which supported the vegetable garden terrace was a thousand feet long and it was covered with earth. And mm. that entire wall was unearthed by archeologists over a period of two years. And it unveiled what the original wall really looked like. A lot of the uh, original rocks were taken away 
but they were still on the property. Mm -hmm. um, and so by doing that archaeology, we were able to put that wall back very precisely. In addition, no. every, every time you disturb our heavy red clay soil, you leave some sort of lasting imprint in terms of the texture or the color of the soil itself. So that archaeologists, mm -hmm. by very carefully trawling off the soil, can see where root stains were and trunk stains from uh, the original fruit trees that were in Jefferson's orchard. And they did this and they formed a pattern that was um, uh, exactly like a Jefferson document that he'd drawn in 1778 of his orchard plantings on the south side of the mountains. Fascinating. So then with this thousand foot wall, um, why was it covered with earth? Was that to protect it or is that just over the years it just it got covered? Just over the years, uh, erosion covered that okay. rock wall. And um, like I said, some of the rocks were, were taken away in the mm -hmm. 1930s by the Civilian Conservation Corps in order to build a modern day exit road wall at uh, Monticello. Oh gosh, <laughs> okay. Uh, but, yep. you know, we had a geologist who we hired to uh, confirm that uh, uh, these rocks were native rocks that we found along the exit road wall and they, they corresponded in their, um, their ratio to uh, the rocks that were found archeologically. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Okay. So that's interesting. You start talking about the soil there for a second, talking about the clay. That's not an easy uh, soil to work with. And the soil that's in the beds these days there, are it's just beautiful. So I'm assuming you amended it heavily? Yeah. the uh, You know, we have uh, 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 greenstone red clay is, mm -hmm. uh, is the soil that's uh, that's innate to this part of the world. And it was really the soil that was sought after by the earliest frontier settlers. It's very rich in minerals and ability um, mm. in a lot of ways. It just has a has a unpleasant or un, unfortunate texture that it packs together when it's wet. But um, that soil was terraced by uh, seven slaves that Jefferson hired from a Fredericksburg, Virginia farmer. And Jefferson, as he was anticipating his retirement from the presidency in 1809, began in 1806 to uh, hire these enslaved workers to move this uh, earth for this thousand foot long terrace with a mule and a cart. And at the, uh, in order to support this terrace, uh, the, enslaved, uh, the enslaved workers put up these, this stone wall that was in some places 10 or 12 feet high. And at the halfway point of the wall was a garden pavilion that was constructed after Jefferson retired to Monticello as I said, in 1809. And this was, again, all found archaeologically, although we had a lot of uh, documentary, written down evidence about the, the character of the mm -hmm. wall, William, and the orchard. And he died in 1826, so that means he only really got to enjoy it for a little over a decade. Well, he retired in 1809, so that's, that's uh, 16 what, 17, years. 17, 17 years. 17 years. And um, I argue that, you know, the, the uh, the vegetable garden Monticello, this thousand foot long terrace was probably Jefferson's um, arguably uh, uh, finest horticultural achievement at Monticello. Mm -hmm. And it was really the garden of his retirement years between the ages of 67 and 83 when he died. It was sort of a, a, an assault on aging for Jefferson to walk into that garden and sow, sow seeds of peas in the springtime or to um, write down um, his harvesting of salsify in October of 1814 or whatever. Mm -hmm. So um, it was very much um, uh, a hobby of Jefferson to garden, and uh, particularly in, in his elderly years, even at the age of 83, Jefferson uh, 
read about giant six foot long cucumbers that were being grown and described in a Cleveland, Ohio newspaper. So Jefferson wrote to the governor of Ohio and uh, asked him for seeds of these giant cucumbers. And he, he, uh, he got the seeds, he passed them around to his neighbors and his friends. He recorded how long each one was. And he wrote one time that although an old man, I am but a young gardener. Mm. He was um, very much at the age of 83, uh, uh, an innocent um, um, young gardener, but at the age of uh, a very uh, elderly age. <clears throat> yeah. Um, and I think you said in the book that those were most likely a gourd. Yeah, I wonder if they were they were a gourd rather than a real cucumber. Um, um, but uh, I think, you know, there's, there's, I can't think of the name of the, of the, of the gourd that's sometimes called a cucumber that's actually eaten like a cucumber. But there are some that uh, can be six or seven feet long. They're pretty yes. strong. Um, yeah. I can't, I thought I just, the, the name doesn't come to them, those kind of cucumbers. Yeah. But I, you know, who knows? Um, um, uh, there was fascination with, um, with cucumbers. There was a gardener in Williamsburg, Virginia, before Jefferson was even born got seeds of a giant cucumber from turkey and he gave it to his son-in-law his name was custis and um there were stories in the williamsburg weekly newspaper about these giant cucumbers that were being grown in uh, new kent county virginia and how people were getting on their horses and riding 30 miles to see these uh, great curiosities and there was huh. a, a reader of the virginia gazette in boston who wrote back to the newspaper and said yeah 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 i want to see your uh your six foot long cucumbers, but where do you see our, our 500 pound watermelons we grew up here in Boston? <laughs> so it set off this sort of mock civil war between these Yankees and the, uh, and the Southerners in Virginia about who could grow the biggest vegetable. Yeah, absolutely. So with the restoration of this, what was the uh, process of restoring the soil? Was it just a lot of compost? I noticed that Jefferson does talk about, you know, mulching or littering where he put in leaves and that sort of thing. Yeah, when Jefferson was serving as, um, as Secretary of State, uh, he got a letter from his daughter, Martha, and she was complaining about the uh, insects ravaging her cabbage plants as fast as she could set them out in the vegetable garden. This was an earlier garden at Monticello. Mm -hmm. Jefferson wrote back to her and said that the, the, problem, with the, um, the problem with the plants was not the uh, injurious insects, but it was the fact that the soil was poor. And he said that two of them were going to cover the entire garden with a heavy coating of manure that winter. Mm. Wrote her that when plants are, um, are growing in rich soil, they will in turn, in Jefferson's words, bid defiance to all sorts of insects and droughts and pests and all the things that uh, come to us in a long, hot summer of gardening in Virginia. So he's obviously mm -hmm. the banner of, a, of the organic gardening movement, but he obviously also didn't have much of an alternative at the time. So yeah. a big, big believer, believer in them. Um, in uh, putting a lot of uh, compost and uh, manures and, uh, and, uh, and improving the soil as a way to uh, bring uh, healthy vegetables to the table. Mm -hmm. And so we spoke of pests there. I, I'm assuming they had a lot of the same pests we have today, or were there specific ones they, they dealt with? Well, you know, that's a, that's a great question. I talk a lot about pests in my books, um, but in some ways, Jefferson was gardening in sort of an age of innocence because... Mm. Uh, a lot of our, our, our worst pests, from weeds to diseases to insects, were uh, imported into this country. Correct. It really become big issues until later on in the uh, 1800s. Um, 
And so there was a sort of age of innocence in regard to pests, which doesn't mean that there weren't pests around. There were some serious ones, particularly on fruit trees, mm. on peaches in the early 1800s. But um, there was a, there, there was a, there wasn't a, a lot of uh, problem in some ways with with pests because it was sort of a virgin ground, and uh, uh, our native pests hadn't really become established enough. Agriculture hadn't created sort of a artificial environment for their um, for pestilent, pestilential spread. So uh, it took time for a lot of uh, uh, invasive pests to be introduced into the United States. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I know one of the native ones I think was what they called the turnip fly or what we would call a flea beetle. Right. Yeah, that was around. That was around in the early 1800s for sure. Yeah. Yeah, it's and still a nasty pest. <laughs> my egg, yeah, they, they get my eggplants pretty bad. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, now, he one of the things about Jefferson is he had an incredibly wide range of things that he was growing. I mean, everything from lavender to castor to, um, I think, sesame. Um, yeah, uh-huh. all, all sorts of things. Well, Jefferson wrote that the greatest service which could be rendered any country is to add a useful plant to its culture. And he mm-hmm. looked at plants as a, as a means of social change. Um, for example, he, uh, he planted uh, uh, sugar maple trees um, in Virginia after seeing them on a botanical journey through New England, 1793. Mm-hmm. And he wrote about how uh, the slavery of, uh, of black people could be uh, alleviated with the planting of sugar maple trees and the labor of what he called only children uh, to harvest this maple sugar. So he looked at plants as a means of, you know, of moving uh, the young republic to a um, to a more equitable and a more uh, in a more uh, uh, prosperous state. Mm-hmm. Uh, he, he introduced the, a, a rice variety that would grow on dry soils uh, under the penalty of death after smuggling it out of Italy. Oh wow! Um, he uh, so there's this long range of. Um, of uh, useful plants that Jefferson was instrumental in promoting. And um, um, that was a real theme behind his interest in agriculture and and horticulture. And he documented the planting at Monticello of some 330 varieties of 89 different species of vegetables, um, 170 varieties of the finest fancy fruits that were known in um, the United States at the time and some 130 different species of uh, ornamental flowers that he planted in the flower gardens at Monticello. Uh, so there was this great um, repository of plants that were brought from all over the world. And um, mm-hmm. I described the particular vegetable garden as an Ellis Island of new and usual plants from the four corners of the earth. And um, that's one of the ways that uh, Monticello and Jefferson was particularly special, this experimentation, this willingness to try all things Mm-hmm. Uh, to look at plants as a way of changing society, but also looking at plants as a way of relating to people. Um, uh, he used plants as a, a means of, um, of uh, working with his family. Um, he exchanged gardening advice with some of the leading politicians of the early 1800s. Um, he had contests with his neighbors to see who could harvest the first English pea in the springtime, in the winter hosting the losers over for a community supper that included a, a feast and the winning dish of peas. So it's all these different themes that um, tell us a lot about uh, who Thomas Jefferson was. Yeah. One of the things I really, uh, that I think probably made your, 
your job a little bit easier, and I want to actually touch on this, was how detailed the records were that he kept. Talk a little bit about, you know, kind of your journey of writing the book and researching it. Yeah, um, there's there's a lot missing. You know, there's a lot missing, that's for sure. But uh, there's probably no gardens in North America before 1830 that were as well documented as the gardens of Monticello. But that doesn't mean that there's um, uh, one mystery after another. Sometimes the more you know, um, the less you know, uh, the more, mm-hmm. uh, more complicated and confusing things become. And, um, you know, some of the things he talked about have disappeared from cultivation. And he often, as well, often used um, um, kind of basic physical descriptive terms to describe plants, like the long green bean or the, mm. uh, or, or the, or the orange carrot. Um, but so retrieving the plants that were grown by Thomas Jefferson has been a, a was, was really a, a career long adventure mm-hmm. and uh, it involved, um, you know, going to England and getting uh, uh, seeds of uh, old fashioned uh, species plants as they were grown in Jefferson's day, um, trying to retrieve uh, uh, Italian fruit varieties and importing them to the United States. Um, so, uh, going to the National Seed Storage Laboratory to find um, unusual and long gone varieties of lettuce. So these were great adventures. A lot of them didn't turn out very well, but yeah. they, were, they, were, they were fun and sometimes they were successful. So it was, uh, Jefferson wrote about gardening that um, the failure of one thing is repaired by the success of another. A wonderful mm-hmm. holistic view of the gardening process. And um, that was certainly um, true for myself. Jefferson failed at so many of the things that he did in the gardens. A few gardeners failed as much as he did. And a few people wrote about gardening failures as uh, unrelentingly as Thomas Jefferson. Uh, so indeed, um, I still do look at gardening as the, the failure of one thing being repaired with the success of another. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I think there's on our farm here, um, every year you've got at least some crop failure and we're always looking at it. Well, that one didn't work, but there's always next year. So, Right, right. No, yeah. um, I think Jefferson had a really well-balanced um, uh, vision of, uh, of, of the uh, follies involved yeah. in the gardening process. But, you know, uh, Jefferson loved to garden. You know, he was a, um, he's regarded as among the more cerebral figures in uh, American history, but he was really good with his hands. Mm. And um, if you see, if you look at the gar- original garden book that's up in Boston, you can see this really amazing, tiny, meticulous handwriting. Um, mm. that, that to me is just remarkable. And um, he, uh, one of his enslaved uh, uh, workers, a blacksmith at Monticello, recalled how Jefferson um, was as good a hand as any man I've ever known in terms of making locks and keys with mm. brass and iron in the Monticello blacksmith shop. Uh, Jefferson tinkered in the, um, in the woodworking shop at Monticello with a lot of the curiosities he developed at Monticello from the moldboard plow of least resistance to um uh, to his uh, his writing machine a copying machine that copied letters for him every time he wrote one mm. so obviously he had a career during his career of like you know with congress and all of that um what percentage of time was he spending at monticello do we yeah, know that's a great question because um you know i think um you know he was he was the uh, he was the governor of virginia he was gone he was a, a secretary of state in the United States and lived in Philadelphia. Uh, he was the uh, 
minister to France for five years. He lived in Paris. Uh, he was vice president of the United States for four years. He was president of the United States for eight years. So um, wow. he was gone for most of the time at Monticello. And that's another uh, one of the issues, both with gardening and with farming, that mm-hmm. everything was about change. And um, um, when I came to Monticello, the focus was on Jefferson's retirement years after he left the presidency and retired. And uh, the final Monticello was ultimately completed, the building itself. Mm-hmm. And there was this uh, a flurry of uh, horticultural efforts at the same time. So it's a rich period in terms of to know what he was doing, but it's hard to realize that he was gone so much of the time. And then even yeah. when he retired to Monticello, he had a second home that he built near Lynchburg, Virginia, a place called Poplar Forest, where he'd go to uh, get away from all the celebrity tourists who would come to bug him at Monticello. And um, um, so even then, even when he was uh, retired at Monticello, he was uh, he was often going off um, not only to Poplar Forest but on botanical journeys. He was an avid botanist. Um, he had a plant named in his honor, the Jeffersonia diphylla, a native wildflower called twin leaf. Huh. Um, it was named in Jefferson's honor for his for his passion for um for botany and and, and zoology. Mm-hmm. So of the varieties and the things he was growing, did he have particular favorites? Like that was something he was always talking about? Yeah, yeah. Um, but everyone has a favorite every day in some ways. But yeah, he would write about, um, he would say, well, this is the, uh, the finest finest chair I've ever known or the, uh, the greatest apple ever developed. Or um, um, yeah, he did have a lot of, he did have a lot of favorites. Um, in the vegetable realm, it was, um, um, perennials like asparagus and artichokes, as well as uh, garden peas. And mm. documented 23 varieties of garden peas, and they were planted in the springtime uh, on successive dates through the springtime with uh, early, mid, and late season varieties. Uh, he had those contests with his neighbors to see who could bring the first pea to table to winter hosting a dinner for the other people who were losers. So it was, um, pea was generally regarded as his favorite vegetable, and um, uh, but he had loved a lot of things. He loved um, he loved a lot of one thing that makes the garden to me really unique and revolutionary was that it has a microclimate in the way it's facing to the southeast, mm-hmm. the way the garden is terraced into the side of the mountain. And uh, at the time, most uh, Virginia gardeners around 1800 were gardening with um, old world European crops, um, most of which were cool season crops, you know, cabbage family members and mm-hmm. crops and greens. What Jefferson did that was kind of unusual was he assembled this huge collection of recently introduced vegetables that came from the tropical world, um, from tomatoes to okra to eggplant to peppers and on and on and on. And he used the microclimate of this south-facing garden to um, uh, have a a rich rich display of of warm, hot-season vegetables. And these were really new things to the community in many ways. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, because I'm looking through the book and you got things like sea kale and corn salad, um, but then you've got things like beans and tomatoes. Now, tomatoes is interesting because there's some varieties that he talks about that we still plant today. Um, one is the Costaludo Genovese tomato. Talk about, you know, his tomatoes. Well, Jefferson, Jefferson never mentioned, I think one time he said he was growing a large tomato, so he never really mentioned um, the type of tomatoes he was growing. 
when we grow we grew Castelluto Genovese or um, purple Calabash tomatoes, we were trying to replicate what a nineteenth mm. century tomato looked like. Um, but yeah, Jefferson grew tomatoes as a culinary vegetable, documenting them beginning and when he retired from the presidency. Um, there's like seventeen different tomato recipes in the um, the records of Thomas Jefferson's family. Um, Tomatoes were just being introduced into gardens at the time. Jefferson had a very horticulturally astute son-in-law named Thomas Mann Randolph. And there was, in Albemarle County, where Charlottesville is, there was the Albemarle Agricultural Society uh, started up by progressive local farmers. And Randolph gave a speech one time in 1822 um, about um, the tomato and about the importance of uh, of uh, introducing new plants into gardens and into farms. And he said, well, remember 10 years ago, uh, no one was growing tomatoes, but now that is in 1822, everyone's growing tomatoes in Charlottesville because they believe they quicken the blood in the summertime. <clears throat> so uh, it was sort of this medicinal value to the tomato that was recognized that led to its uh, incorporation as our, our chief garden vegetable today. Yeah. But uh, go ahead. Well, what you just mentioned there something like a health benefit. So I'm assuming that a lot of what Jefferson was growing too was under the aspect of food as medicine. Yeah, I don't know about that. Um, that's a good question. Um, but I don't see Jefferson looking, you know, he was primary, he wrote that he ate meat only yeah. as a condiment to his meals. And he was, he, was, um, he was kind of a vegetarian. He really wasn't a true vegetarian, but um, he regarded... Uh, meat as a tertiary or a secondary part of his uh, his dining pleasures huh. and um and he doesn't jefferson doesn't talk a lot about using plants for medicine um he does grow um some medicinal herbs and some culinary herbs but we really don't know we know a lot some about jefferson and health but we don't see much documentation about him using plants as medicine interesting um, uh, jefferson was a great gourmet you know, yeah, some people call him the first foodie. Um, it's pretty amazing when he was president of the United States between um, 1801 and 1809. He kept a chart that was published in the Garden Book of the first and last appearance of 37 different vegetables in the uh, farmers market of Washington D.C. Fascinating. Or according to a friend, it's an amazing document. I mean, what was the president of the United States doing? But he was documenting when vegetables came to the market every year and when they disappeared. Yeah. According to one of Jefferson's friends, Jefferson would go around to foreign embassies and they would buy with each other to get him the most unusual variety that came from their country. And then he told his French mater D who did the shopping to pay the highest prices for the prettiest cauliflower or the earliest tomato that came into the market. So he was um, really fostering local gardening uh, as president of the United States with his, um, with his record keeping about the, uh, the, uh, the farmer's market in Washington, D.C. Fascinating. Fascinating. He, he was a gourmet. You know, he, he loved French food, but he, uh, he also, uh, uh, his enslaved African-American chefs at Monticello who were trained in French cuisine um, uh, were also uh, introducing a lot of, uh, um, of Virginia uh, specialties into the kitchen at Monticello and also in the president's house in Washington, D.C. Uh, mm -hmm. There's a recipe in the Jefferson family 
family records for um, okra soup, in effect, um, gumbo. Mm-hmm. And uh, the vegetables in it are really interesting. There were um, uh, patty pan squashes and, uh, and lima beans, which were two crops grown by Virginia Indians when the first Europeans arrived in Virginia in the 17th century. There was tomatoes that um, were found by the Spanish in the 15th century in Central America and became popular in the Mediterranean region, although not in Northern Europe. There were potatoes, also a, a South American native that when introduced into Europe became popular in Northern Europe, uh, not mm. in the Mediterranean region. There was okra, which was brought across the Atlantic Ocean from African slave ships. Creolized mm-hmm. okra cuisine was creolized by the French in the Caribbean and then introduced into a southern seaports of the young United States. So what a great amalgam of all these different uh, vegetables that were put together in the, um, in the Monticello kitchen by enslaved African-American chefs who've been trained not only in the, uh, by the best chefs in, in Paris, but also by Jefferson's French chef in the, uh, in the president's house or what's called mm-hmm. the white house today. So what a great uh, amalgam of all these different vegetables from all these four corners of the globe that began to define who we are as, um, mm-hmm. as Virginians and as Southerners, as Americans, as eclectic cuisine made up of uh, elements from all over the world. Yeah, we're truly the melting pot even at that day. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. This podcast is sponsored by Small Farm University, the go-to resource for gardeners, homesteaders, and farmers around the world. Small Farm University delivers classes online and on demand with training on how to grow crops and how to grow a profitable farm business that serves you, your family, and your community well. Applying what you learn in SFU could save you thousands of hours and thousands of dollars. And it can save you the agony of costly mistakes some make just because they don't know what they don't know. Delivered by real farmers with hands-on experience and expertise, it is unique in its approach, using the ripened method for growing and building a farm or farm business. Here are a few highlights of what SFU has to offer in its growing library of resources. Find your perfect farm property. Whether you are renting or purchasing, this course guides you through vetting the farm property and determining how or if it suits your business needs. We give you the secret sauce for what makes a profitable farm property and help save you thousands of dollars. Start your farm intensive. Fleshing out your farm idea, craft your one-page business plan, and discover the right funding options for your business. Use our business templates, worksheets, and calculators to figure out the numbers as you go. Farmer's Market Success System. Learn how to attract and convert customers by building an unstoppable marketing and business system for your farmer's markets. Production Mastery Series. Learn all about growing, harvesting, and drying greens. Learn about tunnel building and take special classes such as brand new and very popular Elderberry Masterclass. We include real-life examples and calculators for figuring out fertility rates, how much money you are actually making, and where your profit is coming from. Business Systems and Marketing Courses. Learn about the SFU Ripen Formula for Success, develop your marketing plan, and join in for behind-the-scenes tours of real farm businesses. Learn the systems you need to run your business well and how to hire a team to help you. And learn how you can add value to what you produce to generate even more income with minimal additional time and expense. In addition, members of SFU get access to the Growing Farmer Summits on demand with over 100 sessions of targeted areas of interest to farmers. These annual online events have attracted over 100,000 people from around the world, and they are included in your SFU membership as a bonus. SFU membership includes access to a private member group, 
monthly group Q&A sessions, and even one-on-one coaching sessions where you can get your questions answered and find the support you need. To learn more, visit growingfarmers.com today. Talk a little bit about that and his kind of philosophy on that, because I know he had written extensively on that. Yeah, it's a complicated topic, um, but you know, the basic fact is that you know Jefferson wrote in the Declaration of Independence that all men are created equal, equal but he owned some uh, 600 people over his lifetime at Monticello and at Poplar Forest. And um, um, uh, certainly enslaved African-Americans did all the labor on the farm. You know, Jefferson regarded himself as a farmer. He was a terrible farmer. He, you know, he was an experimental farmer. He wrote a lot about farming, but um, he wasn't probably a very good farmer. Mm. Um, um, and in the garden itself, labor was, Jefferson had a couple of European professional gardeners for a few years. There was an Italian named Anthony Giannini who worked in the orchards and in the garden when Jefferson was minister to France. And there was a, a, a Scottish gardener who worked for five years uh, professionally in the garden at Monticello. Uh, Jefferson's daughters and granddaughters did a certain amount of gardening. And, um, 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 but much of the gardening was done by enslaved African-Americans. Um, there was a Wormley Hughes, who was um, 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 not only the man who took care of the horses at Monticello, but during Jefferson's retirement, he did a certain amount of, of labor in the gardens as well. Um, Wormley Hughes was a larger than life figure at Monticello. Uh, he uh, planted seeds in the Monticello nurseries. He planted trees that Jefferson brought back from uh, Washington, D.C. But Jefferson did a lot of a certain amount of labor himself. One of his slaves, uh, Isaac Jefferson, um, recalled how in the cool of the evening, Jefferson would work at a right hard pace uh, for about a half an hour at a time and mm. very much the gentleman gardener. And uh, another woman who came to Monticello uh, described a, a portable seed rack that was carried from planting site to planting site. And it was brought and she said it was placed by him, by Jefferson, who himself went and sowed the seeds with his own hands. Um, so he also documented, you know, a certain amount of, so he did a lot of planting in the garden, particularly in his retirement. It was a defiance of old age. And mm. Jefferson was also a great surveyor. And um, he was the son of a surveyor and he loved Euclidean mathematics and formality in some ways to the landscape. And there's lots of documents about him in the garden, laying out the garden into its beds and walkways and what he called squares, which were the large beds in the garden itself. And one can see Jefferson out in the garden in February. He's, he's probably a little bit bent over with arthritis in his older age. Um, his boots were probably covered with red clay from Monticello in the middle of wintertime. And he had a tool called a theodolite, which is like a transit that marked right angles. And he would use that and move from one side to another. And then he had a chain, which measured distances like a tape measure. And mm. one could see uh, Wormley Hughes at the other end of the chain, uh, stretching the chain tight and then marking a spot at the edge of one of these beds with, um, with a post or with the uh, stake. So Jefferson was, was out there, you know, actually doing work to some extent himself, but certainly it was a slave culture. And um, um, today at Monticello, uh, the, the, the issue of slavery is, is very pronounced in this interpretation of Monticello, talking about the contributions of the enslaved people who really built Monticello, who worked in the gardens and, um, um, and, and so they tell this other side of, of, of Monticello that's so very essential, I think, for us today. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, it is a period in our history and I think we have to recognize it. Um, but uh, it's, it's always interesting the amount of labor that went into back then. Just the, if you think of through the amount of people that he had working for him on that operation um, and, uh, and their, their uh, I want to say like contribution to that. It was just it, literally they built it. Right. Um, you know, the garden, the vegetable garden, and you know, it's, it's, I'm not sure it was really heavily maintained. Um, um, one thinks of this huge slave force that they really weren't devoted to the garden. They were more occupied with cash crops, um, uh-huh. tobacco for a number of years, and then wheat. And I, th- I think the garden was fairly casually maintained. It wasn't really a fussy garden. It was uh-huh. all about trying these new things and seeing what happens. And then, you know, the magic word in Jefferson's garden book was uh, brought to table uh, Mm -hmm. things harvested and um, um, uh, food was a big deal for jefferson and um and 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 homegrown vegetables that came from this garden were also um were also essential but uh, this wasn't the only garden in monticello enslaved people on the five thousand acre plantation had their own gardens that they cultivated on on sundays or even in the evening after they came in from the fields and we know about these gardens because they, they sold the uh, produce to the Jefferson family. Uh, particularly, um, these enslaved gardens were active when Jefferson was not at Monticello. He didn't have this large thousand-foot-long vegetable garden. And Jefferson's family, his granddaughters, his daughter, his wife, Martha, and Jefferson himself all recorded purchases of produce on um, uh, through the course of the season from different enslaved people at Monticello. And Jefferson's um, great-granddaughter, Ann Carrie Randolph, between the ages of 14 and 17, her job on Sunday morning was to go out and purchase this produce from enslaved people. Mm. And at this intersection of uh, white and black worlds at Monticello, you know, one wonders who was driving the hard bargain. It's a 15-year-old girl who's a rite of passage involved them. Um, bartering with these enslaved people uh, for the cost of 27 cabbages or three dozen cucumbers, who was driving the hard bargain. Uh, so it's interesting intersection of those two worlds in the uh, process of purchasing produce from the enslaved people. Uh-huh. But also uh-huh. these, you know, enslaved, these gardens um, gave uh, uh, enslaved people some uh, sense of self-determination and um, uh, empowered their own lives and enabled them to get extra monies to uh, buy fancy items for their family to um, make purchase foodstuffs themselves. Um, uh, so it's an interesting facet of horticulture at Monticello was that these two worlds of gardens that the, mm-hmm. the, uh, the owner and the slaves both had their own. And this was typical throughout the southern plantations. Fascinating. Now, it's interesting because you, you talk more about it being experimentation. Um, would you say that how the gardens are today is as good or better than they would have been when Jefferson was actually at Monticello? Oh, I don't know. I, mean, I think they're probably we're probably a little better. Um, I think our maintenance probably is a lot stronger than it was in Jefferson's day. Our care for the vegetables. Mm. Vegetables function, the gardens function a lot of different ways. One way they function is that uh, they're a, a preservation seed bank for um, historic varieties of fruits, flowers, and vegetables. And so uh, we grow a lot of stuff for uh, preserve it from year to year. And uh, at Monticello today, we have a, a, 
a large program called the Thomas Jefferson Center for Historic Plants that distributes seeds and plants of uh, historic varieties and native plants um, to a wide audience throughout the country. And uh, particularly the seed program is, is, is really quite um, advanced. And um, um, we also have a garden store at Monticello where we sell plants that were Jefferson's favorite favorite uh, apple tree or um, mm-hmm. native plants that grow in the area that Jefferson recorded in his notes on the state of Virginia. Um, so it's uh, the gardens function a little bit differently. Mm-hmm. And um, also, you know, as a gardener, I try to do the best I could to make it a pretty garden. Yeah. Uh, um, although uh, we would acknowledge uh, problems and we'd also like to interpret things like pests and um, to talk about the history of, um, of the flea beetle, for example. And so we had kind of a benign neglect approach toward pest control in some ways, but we still worked as hard as we could to uh, make it um, a thriving garden. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Now, you mentioned the seeds. Now, how do folks, if they do want to purchase some of these varieties, what's the best way for them to go about that? Well, you just Google Monticello and um, uh, the Thomas Jefferson Center for Historic Plants, and um, you can order um, uh, really hundreds of varieties of uh, flowers and vegetable seeds from um, Monticello. If you come to Monticello, our garden shop is uh, open every day except Christmas. And um, you can purchase some um, plants and pots that are grown at a, a nearby farm. In 1987, the, the program was developed. I went to England and um, there was a, a, a nursery in Scotland called Plants from the Past that were mm. collecting and selling these 18th century English flowers, wallflowers and primulas and dianthuses that were being grown in the 17th and 18th century. So that was the real inspiration for this Thomas Jefferson Center for Historic Plants to try and um, retrieve a lot of these varieties and to offer them to public and distribute them to as many places as possible. Mm -hmm. The vegetable garden today is in some ways a seed garden and the flower gardens as well. We don't deadhead the flowers. We let them go to seed in order to collect the seed to be able to package them and distribute them to um, the people who come out of challenge to really people throughout the world. Very cool. Very cool. So over your, you were there for several decades. If you could go back and start over again, is there anything you would have changed differently or you feel like your time there was, you know, you were kind of just learning as you went and it was a good, a good career there. Yeah. I, I, you know, I, I don't know. Yeah. I would, I, I've learned a lot after 35 years, but I'm not sure I would have, <laughs> Proved any of my performance by going back and starting over because uh, uh, gardening is um, it, 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 so much involved and so many things mm-hmm. happen. You're dealing with so many different issues. And, you know, in 35 years, a lot of things have changed. We had a lot of new, a lot of new paths have come in mm-hmm. in five years. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, there's, there's, there's some, there's a lot of things I probably would have changed and done differently for, because, uh, you know, you learn over a period of time and uh, there was a lot of folly. Um, you know, I could talk uh, for hours about all the things that went wrong, and I, mm-hmm. I, I could deal with a little bit. Um, it was a historic garden, and it wasn't like um, we were going to lose our farm if uh, we didn't sell uh, 45 tomatoes that day. Mm-hmm. So there was, there was a sort of a relaxed atmosphere and sense of that. So it wasn't like a, but, you know, there was, it, was a, it, was a, it, was a, it was a struggle. You know, all farming is struggling, and... Um, and uh, the weather was a huge issue. And the Monticello is a tough place to garden. Um, mm. It's hot, it's dry, that soil is heavy. Um, uh, we had lots of droughts and we 
would lose our water our water system. Some places, sometimes in the summertime, it looked like Afghanistan up there. Oh um, yeah. Mm -hmm. So water was always an issue, but it was a huge issue for Jefferson. It looked certainly a lot better than because we did do a lot of watering, a lot of irrigation. Um, it was certainly an improvement over uh, uh, some of the description we have of um, of Monticello and Jefferson's day. So mm -hmm. there was, um, you know, what would I do differently? I don't know what I would do different. Um, I, I had a fascinating job because I was, um, I not only was responsible for the gardens and the uh, 20, 2,400 acres at Monticello, but, you know, I wrote books and four books about Thomas Jefferson, and a lot of educational programs I started from uh, the Center for Historic Plants to a Historic Landscape Institute, a two-week program studying the um, history and the um, and uh, the theory and practice of historic landscape preservation, um, the seed program, a lot of educational programs that um, I developed over my tenure in Monticello. And I was also a project manager for a big jobs, a seven and a half million dollar project to develop a park leading up to Monticello called the Thomas Jefferson Parkway. Mm. So it was fascinating the role I had because I got to do all these different things. And I'm not, I, I might have been spread a little bit too thin. But <laughs> It was easy to write uh, books about Thomas Jefferson. It was easy to, in some ways, to even be a project manager for a big project, but keeping the deer from eating the cabbage plants at Monticello and watering the garden when we were running out of water. Those were the real challenges for me. That's the bold stuff where the, uh, where the, uh, was the hard work. I bet I spent, um, in the summertime, I bet I uh, spent 70, 60% of my time uh, dealing with the irrigation issues. Yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> No, that, that, that makes sense. And I think, you know, to that point is some of the times, you know, you're struggling with that stuff and you kind of can think back to look at even us with these modern conveniences are still having some of the same problems that Thomas Jefferson had. All right. No question. And like, again, um, Jefferson was experimenting with things and um, um, he also was sort of a dreamer and, um, mm -hmm. and he would, he would cover these great ideas, but uh, actually, uh, Putting them to practice was another matter, uh, particularly you know with the slave economy, and um, and um, uh, with all the times he was gone from Monticello, and um, um, it was a, it was a struggle for Thomas Jefferson and a lot of some of the gardening issues he stopped writing about. For example, his orchards after eighteen fourteen, mm. he stopped writing about the flower gardens after eighteen twelve. Uh, he continued to write about the vegetable garden and um, and um, in some fruit tree plantings, but he may have gotten a little discouraged himself, but he was very persistent. Mm -hmm. um, one of his um, favorite plants was sesame. You mentioned it earlier. Yeah. Jefferson was always looking for a, a great salad oil for the preparation of his vegetables. And when he was president of the United States, he had a, a blind tasting of salad oils. And people liked the sesame plant better than even olive oil. Mm -hmm. That set off this typical mad Jefferson obsession with sesame. And he would... Um, developed three different presses in order to extract an oil from the seed itself. Uh, he sent uh -huh. it to uh, everybody, all the, all the uh, farmers and gardeners he knew with these hyperbolic statements about how this was the savior of American democracy. Uh, <laughs> he failed, he failed you know, time and time again, but then he was still sowing sesame you know, well into his uh, late 70s and early 80s. Uh, uh -huh. So he was much more successful after that persistence of some 10 or 15 years. Now, did he at all get into hemp? Very, very lightly as a, as okay. a cash, as a crop for, for clothing for the enslaved. Mm -hmm. There's some mentions of hemp, but 
Jefferson wasn't smoking dope on the terrace at Monticello. <laughs> um, yeah. He, he well, looked at purely, um, purely, purely a, an agricultural functional product for, um, but it, it wasn't, it wasn't, it was mentioned yeah. very seldomly. Well, I think but, there's a tremendous opportunity for hemp as a fiber. And I think we're just the, the, the challenge right now in the U S is just to uh, get the industry with enough infrastructure to actually make it work. Oh yeah, now it's an exciting crop and uh, it has a lot of potential and I think it's relatively easy to grow. I don't know, I may be mm-hmm. wrong. But, uh, no, it is, it is. I think the biggest challenge is regulation because like here in Ohio, it the fiber hemp is relegated just the same as like CBD hemp, which and which means like you have to pay for licenses, you have to have a certain number of plants, they have to come out and inspect it. And I'm like, guys, this is fiber. This isn't like, it doesn't have anything nasty in it. Or Again, I'm not saying nasty because I think all the things in there are very valuable and different aspects, but according to how the government likes to classify it, I guess is where I'm coming from with that. Right. The same in Virginia right now, there's a lot of legislative uh, confusion and chaos regarding uh-huh. um, the dealing with with, with hemp uh-huh. in, uh, in stores because it was legalized at some point. The marijuana was even legalized, but then the recent government, the least recent legislature pulled back on that. And so it's very yeah are unfortunate. Making, trying to make a living um, growing it and distributing it yeah well uh, peter i really appreciate your time today this has been a fascinating conversation i'm sure we could go on for a number of more hours um i you know i have read your um the uh, your main book there the rich spot of earth and i do intend to dive into others just because of um, he was such a fascinating guy and i think of anybody you spent so much time there researching it that you have a really good insight to so much of what happened there. But um, really appreciate your time today. Yeah, after 35 years, I should have learned something. <laughs> yes. Now, you do did mention his garden journal, which, as you said, up in Massachusetts, correct? Yeah, it's online. And um, Okay, it is journal, online. The garden journal was published in a larger book called Thomas, Jefferson, Thomas Jefferson's Garden Book. Okay. And the original garden book is included in the garden Thomas Jefferson, and it's a, it's a, it was edited by a University of Virginia botanist in 1945, and it's some 700 pages long. It includes all the letters and all the documents Jefferson wrote about gardening. And Fascinating. So a wonderful volume that um, I read twice before I came to Monticello, showing you what a, a nerd I was. Uh-huh. But it was, a, it was the basis for a lot of our labors at Monticello. Yeah, I am. You know, it's interesting looking that you were three years and then um, you were pulled right into Monticello. But it, it sounds like you were just such a nerd before that they couldn't resist hiring you. Well, yeah, that's, a, that's there's all these stories I have about the, the serendipitous nature of my career. And, um, yeah, that's um, fascinating. I, I turned the job down a number of times. Oh, really? <laughs> I, I, I was going to inherit a 17 mountain man uh, from the mountains of the hollows of Virginia. Yeah, and I was. I'd had previous encounters with them backpacking in uh, Shenandoah National Park, and I was terrorized by them. And so I kept saying, well, I don't know if I can handle those boys or not. And, yeah. Uh, finally, they, they, they finally tempted me to come, and I thought, well, if things get bad, I'll just run away. <laughs> but it was, uh, it was an adventuresome, it was an adventuresome career um, and, and experience coming to Monticello and, um, and, um, and yeah. enjoying the garden. Yeah. Well, again, it's been a pleasure, Peter. Appreciate your time. Thanks again so much. Okay. Well, good luck. Thanks a lot for your, for your interest and um, God bless you. All right. Thank you. 
So there you have it. Another episode in the books. So I'd love if you would hop on over to iTunes and leave us a rating and a review. Those mean everything to us. We love to hear what you're thinking. If you have a podcast guest that you can recommend, please pop on over to the Thriving Farmer podcast website and leave us a review. That's thrivingfarmerpodcast.com. 